is coming out this month. And um, it has some updates based on the latest archaeological discoveries and linguistic discoveries. And so it's the most accurate Bible you can get in the English language. And I'll be using it from now on. I'm excited about it. And if you like the NIV, you might want to use it too. If you have your other versions, well, then stick with those. So 1 Timothy chapter 1. I once had a job where um, everyone dreaded to come to work every day. It was a stressful place to work. You had to watch your back because you didn't know when your coworkers were going to try to get you into trouble. Um, you never knew where you stood with your boss. You could think things were going great, and then she might chew your head off one day for no apparent reason. I had another job where I actually looked forward to going in most days. The staff felt like a family. We helped each other out. We had parties and picnics from time to time after work. And we felt like our boss was really interested in seeing us excel as people and as professionals. The second workplace was a healthy environment. The first was a toxic one. Families can be that way too. And so can churches. Maybe you've had the misfortune of being part of an unhealthy, dysfunctional church. Or maybe you've had the blessing of being part of a really healthy one. What makes the difference? Well, a big part of it is leadership. It has to do with the tone that leaders set, with their own example and character, the way they relate to the people that they lead. But it goes beyond leadership into the, the values and the priorities and the flavor and even the beliefs which that community shares at, at its core. Well, today we begin spending a month in the book of 1 Timothy, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young assistant, Timothy. And Paul has put Timothy in charge of trying to change the environment in the church at Ephesus, which were a number of house churches meeting in that city. And as we'll quickly see as we get into this letter this morning, the church's culture there in Ephesus was becoming toxic. And Paul wants Timothy to do all he can to bring it back to health. How's Timothy to accomplish this? Well, three ways. First, he's to get the right kind of leaders leading this church. Second, he's to set a good example with his own life as a leader of what health looks like. And third, which is where we'll focus today, he's to teach good theology, good truths about Jesus Christ and God. Because you see, what we really believe to be true matters. What we really believe, not what we say we believe when we mouth religious words, but, but what we really know to be true down in our hearts, it matters a great deal. It can make the difference between a wholesome, healthy environment and a sickly, toxic one. So let's look at this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to his young assistant Timothy about these matters. Timothy is a young guy. From what we can tell, he seems to be mild-mannered, even timid. But he's faithful. He's mature for his age. He has a great heart, and, and God has gifted him with real abilities in the area of ministry. And so the Apostle Paul considers Timothy to be an indispensable partner in his ministry. And, and, and Paul has gotten to know him, he has trained him, he's mentored him, and he's come to love him a great deal. And now Paul has given Timothy an assignment. Verse 3 of Timothy chapter 1. 
As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Paul knows this is going to be a tough job for young Timothy, and so he writes him this letter to encourage and exhort him. And based on the tone of the letter and some of what Paul says when you read through 1 Timothy, many interpreters believe that Paul expects Timothy not only to read this letter himself, but also to have it read with, in the church. That would give Timothy credibility, and it would put the full weight of Paul's apostolic authority behind the task that Timothy has to do. In fact, normally Paul just writes his letters directly to the churches, right? Then it's up to the leaders of the church to, to make sure that his instructions are carried out. But, but this case is a little different because part of the problem in the Ephesian churches is the leaders. And, and so Paul has sent Timothy as his representative to get these leaders to shape up or else Timothy is going to have to get them to ship out. And so in this case, Paul doesn't write to the church. He doesn't write to the elders of the church. He writes to Timothy, his representative there, who has to do some bold house cleaning. In Acts 2, Paul had already warned the Ephesian church, that, or the elders in particular, that, that some of their own numbers would rise up and, and lead some of the church away from the truth. And now that seems to be taking place. Paul even names two of these leaders or would-be leaders in verse 20 of chapter 1. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It seems that Paul has already kicked these two men out of the church until they repent of the false things that they've been teaching. But they're still around in the neighborhood, no doubt, and who knows what kind of trouble they're stirring up. In 2 Timothy 2, the follow-up letter that Paul writes later to Timothy in Ephesus to address some of the same problems which continued to go on, Paul also mentions Philetus as a third problem person. So what exactly are these three men and other leaders of this church doing that's so problematic? Well, according to verse 3 of our chapter this morning, they're teaching false doctrines. They're devoting themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. In verse 6, Paul calls it meaningless talk. He says these people want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. In chapter 6, Paul says they're conceited and they understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. He adds that they're into it for the money. They have been robbed of the truth and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In chapter 5, Paul alludes to elders who are sinning, though he doesn't mention what these specific sins are. And, And so he instructs Timothy in the letter both how to remove elders who need to be removed and also how to select new elders who will be the right kind of leaders for the church. And in the very last part of this letter, Paul warns about godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. That's how bad it's gotten. Later, when Paul writes his second letter to Timothy, in uh, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to warn the Ephesians about quarreling about words, about avoiding godless chatter, 
and about foolish and stupid arguments. So we get the picture. Um, putting the pieces together, the situation seems to be that some Ephesian elders or perhaps others are confidently teaching some kind of esoteric stuff from the Old Testament and maybe from, from pagan sources too, from the other religions in the city. And they're leading people from the church on a theological wild goose chase based on genealogies and the meanings of words. They're focusing on the minutia. They're getting the church's focus off the things that matter most and, and into this distraction. And we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we get some hints. Now, one of the reasons I'm going into so much detail to set this up is because all of this is going to be very important as we work our way through Timothy and we get into some important practical matters in the next coming weeks. So what is it that they seem to be teaching? Well, in 2 Timothy 2.18, Paul mentions that these people were saying the resurrection had already taken place. In 1 Timothy 4.3, they forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods. Some interpreters also wonder about Paul's comment in chapter 4 that physical training is of some value, but Timothy should train himself to be godly, which has value for all things. And they wonder if the false teachers were encouraging some sort of ascetic program of physical fasting or, or deprivation or exercise as a way of being more spiritual. And, and so scholars add up all these pieces, and a number of them wonder if this false teaching is something like what was going on over in the city of Corinth, if you read the book of Corinthians, the books of Corinthians, where some false teachers had gotten the idea that the resurrection had already taken place. And, and if this was true, the Corinthians reasoned, if the resurrection has already taken place, then when you come to Christ, you become a brand new spiritual resurrected person. And if you're so spiritual, then, then your physical body isn't so important anymore. You're resurrected after all. And, and so you can ignore your physical needs and desires, and, and you need to focus on the really spiritual stuff. Well, how do you do this? Well, maybe you observe a, a strict basic diet based on the Old Testament, you know, kind of like a, a diet in God's way or something like that. Maybe you do certain ascetic practices or, or exercises to deny your body. Maybe wearing hair shirts or, or fasting or who knows what else they were coming up with as a way of, of, of disciplining your body to, 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 uh, to be quiet and to get out of the way because you're a spiritual resurrected person. Maybe you even do away with sex and marriage. After all, didn't Jesus say at the resurrection will be like the angels in heaven, neither marrying nor being given in marriage? And so maybe the Ephesians were concluding like the Corinthians evidently had that super spiritual Christians were beyond all that male and female sex and marriage stuff. We're like angels now. We're super spiritual. Well, whatever exactly this teaching in Ephesus was, those teaching it and those following it were becoming conceited and smug in this new spirituality. False religion often does that. It makes you feel superior to those who don't know the truth like you do. And evidently, these Ephesians had also lost their heart for outreach. They, they figured that they were the chosen few. They were the enlightened ones, and they just didn't care about anyone else. Notice how Paul challenges this idea in 1 Timothy 1 and 2. And in chapter 115, he says that Jesus came to save sinners. In 2.1, he says that, that we should pray for all people because 
verse 4, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved. So the Ephesians were getting badly off track. And because what we believe matters, that these toxic beliefs were quickly becoming and turning them into a toxic community. Paul gives us evidence of that in chapter 6, verse 4. He says the result is envy and strife and malicious talk and evil suspicions and constant friction. In 2 Timothy 2, he tells Timothy to warn people to stop quarreling about words and to avoid arguments which produce quarrels. Paul also warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 about men who were worming their way into homes and gaining control over gullible women. And then back in 1 Timothy 5, Paul speaks of young widows who were idle, who were going about from house to house, being busybodies, talking nonsense, saying things they ought not to. All right, so that's the basic picture we get about what was going on in Ephesus. That's why Timothy's there. That's why Paul is writing to Timothy. And for us, the picture's still kind of spotty. We don't have all the details. It's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You, you get a lot of clues of what's going on, but you don't have the whole picture because you're missing the other side. Timothy, of course, knows exactly what Paul's talking about. He's, he's there on the ground in Ephesus. He's got names and faces and details for all the things that Paul is saying. But, but we're just hearing what Paul says from a distance, and we're trying to put the pieces together as best we can. Anyway, what is clear is that there are some men in this church, probably leaders, who are teaching bad theology, false doctrines, strange religious teachings, and they're doing it out of conceit, and they're doing it to make money, to make a name for themselves, to make money for themselves. And evidently, they've got some of the women in the church to, to spread and to encourage this, and that becomes very important when we look at 1 Timothy 2 next week. As you probably know, churches back then met... Um, in homes, and, and usually it was in larger homes, these large households of, of wealthy, prominent members. And, and these large households weren't like our private homes today. Rather, they included shops and they included businesses as part of them. They were cottage industries, and, and extended families lived together as well as did slaves and apprentices and tenants all in these large households. And so... The women that Paul's referring to here were more than likely wealthy, upper-class women who lived in these households and, and had leisure time and freedom because they had slaves to do all their work for them. And so these women had the resources to host and to promote these false teachers, and they were spreading these false ideas from household to household. And the result is, of all of this, that believers are getting distracted from what really matters. They're wasting their time focusing on trivia. And it's leading to fights and conflicts and jealousy and envy and gossip and suspicion and arrogance and selfishness in these churches. And some people have gotten so off track that Paul says they've wandered completely away from the faith altogether. Would you like to be part of a church like that? It was toxic. It was a mess. And what was the root? It was bad theology. It was false teaching. It kind of reminds me of the Lord of the Rings, the second part, the two towers. Remember, if you've seen the movies or you've read the books, Theoden was the good noble king of Rohan. And he had this advisor named Wormwood, or Wormtongue, 
who um, was secretly working for the enemy. And, and Wormtongue kept subtly twisting reality, introducing a little deception into every truth. And over time, it poisoned good King Theoden's mind and poisoned the whole kingdom, nearly ruined them. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. And it still happens today. So God inspired Paul to write 1 Timothy to help Timothy sort this out in Ephesus. And in God's providence, this letter has been preserved for us today as part of God's word to likewise warn and to help us. So let's focus in on chapter 1 now. In this chapter, Paul contrasts the false teaching and its result with the true gospel and its result. The first brings sickness, the second brings health. Bad ideas, bad thoughts will poison your mind and your relationships, but good ideas, true ideas, will make you and your relationships healthy and whole. And if you multiply that by a whole community, you get an environment, you get a culture, which is either toxic or life-giving. Paul makes this point with the words he chooses to use. In, in verse 1-6, Paul says, Some have turned to meaningless talk. And this word turned here in the Greek is a medical word. It's used of, of a sprained ankle or a wrenched or dislocated shoulder. These false teachers are out of joint, in other words. Over in 2 Timothy 2-17, Paul adds that this false teaching spreads like gangrene. Gangrene, that's a powerful image. This teaching is unhealthy, it's deadly. By contrast, in verse 10 of our chapter this morning, Paul calls what he and Timothy have been teaching sound doctrine. And this word sound here also means healthy. Some teaching about God is healthy. Other teaching is out of joint. It's toxic. It's like gangrene. What we believe really matters. So what does a community raised on healthy teaching look like? Well, Paul says in verse 5, the goal of this command, the command that false teachers stop teaching toxic doctrine, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word there, sincere, is um, non-hypocritical, literally, is what it says. Sincere. That's healthy. Love coming from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. Paul goes on in his letter to describe what a healthy community grounded in love looks like, at least in the first century city of Ephesus. In chapter 2, he says, believers should live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness and holiness. He says they should pray. And they should pray for everyone, especially for their civic leaders. The men should pray without anger and disputing. They need to stop arguing about theology and start getting together in unity to pray that God would bless not only themselves, but others. The women, he says, need to focus on being modest, on doing good deeds, on living quiet lives. And then if you read on into chapters 3 to 6, the believers should devote themselves to caring for one another and caring for others too, to, to raising children, to caring for their elderly relatives, especially the widows. They should focus on managing their homes and businesses in these households that they lived in, to uh, being content with what they have. 
and with being generous with their wealth. That's a healthy community. That's a community rooted in love. And Paul says that's what good teaching, that's what the true gospel will produce if, if it's really taught and really grasped a hold of. When I started seminary back in the 90s, the main prayer I prayed again and again during those three years was, God, teach me the difference between those things in your word which really matter, which are worth fighting for, and those things which are secondary. And I prayed this because in seminary, you, you quickly move beyond the basics into the minutiae. You know, you learn Greek, you learn Hebrew, you study all these theologians, you, you really get into the fine points. And I didn't want to get distracted along the way by non-essential matters. I wanted to have a good grasp of, of what was core, what was central, because I knew enough to know that, that it was that that has the power to bring health to a community. While getting distracted by the minutia quickly becomes toxic to a community. So what is central? What is core? Well, in chapter 1, Paul answers this question for Timothy. First, negatively and then positively. First, negatively in verses 8 to 11, he talks about the law. And then positively in verses 12 to 17, he talks about the gospel. So first, negatively, he notes that these false teachers want to be teachers of the law. And evidently, they found the Old Testament law to be a treasure trove of old stories and genealogies that you could get distracted by and, and rules that you could impose on people to get them to be really spiritual. And Paul says that's not what the law is for. The law isn't for righteous people to satisfy their curiosity or make them feel spiritual. No, the law was written for wicked people to get them to stop being wicked. It's meant to, to warn people not to be parent killers and murderers and practicing homosexuals and slave traders and liars, etc. Paul goes on with the list. And I think Paul is kind of taking a jab at the false teachers here. He, he's saying, okay, if you like the law so much... Do you realize the law is written for wicked people? Is that who you really are? If you are, then listen to what the law says. It tells you to repent and shape up. And if you don't consider yourself to be a wicked person, then stop obsessing about the law and focus on the gospel. And then Paul goes on positively, second, to remind Timothy of what the, law, the gospel is. And Paul does it by way of telling his own story because this stuff isn't theoretical for Paul. It's very personal. Truth is, is personal. The, the, the truth, the good teaching Paul wants Timothy to be making sure is being taught in Ephesus is, is core and central to Paul's own identity. It's his reason for being alive. Paul says, I was once a blasphemer and, and a persecutor and a violent man. I was the kind of law, guy who the law condemned. But I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If you know Paul's story, then you know that he was hell-bent on destroying Jesus' followers. And as Paul was headed to the city of, of Damascus to wreak more havoc there, Jesus showed up in powerful glory and stopped Paul dead in his tracks. But instead of crushing Paul, like Paul deserved, like the law demanded, Jesus forgave Paul. 
And he actually offered Paul a job to work for him, to be, in a sense, Jesus' right-hand man. And Paul never got over being overwhelmed by that kind of overflowing mercy. That's what's central, Paul says. That's what matters. Not some esoteric speculation about Old Testament law. But the good news that God, through Jesus, is extending his mercy to people like me who don't deserve it. The story is told of the time that uh, Swiss theologian Karl Barth came to America. I think it was the 1920s. And, and Barth had been invited by several prestigious American universities to give a, a series of lectures. And the American press was out in force, all excited to meet this great theologian. These were the days when America was, in many respects, a Christian nation. And uh, people looked up to Bart as the greatest theological mind of his time. And this was his first appearance in America. And one reporter asked Bart if he could sum up his theology in one sentence. And Bart thought for a minute, and then this man who, who had written thick tomes of theology answered, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Paul couldn't agree more. He goes on in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Not, notice, was the worst, but am the worst. But for that very reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as, as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, Jesus has, has forgiven me, the worst of sinners. And if Jesus can forgive me and accept me, he can forgive and accept anybody. And so Paul bursts into praise, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, what the Ephesian church needed to know was not the meaning of esoteric genealogies, or some secret message conveyed through some old myths, or some obscure religious word and what it actually meant, or, or why they shouldn't eat this type of food or enjoy that type of pleasure. No, what they needed to know was how much God loved them. They needed to know that they too had done plenty to displease God and that they had, they had racked up a spiritual debt heavy enough to completely bankrupt them forever. But instead of giving them the thrashing they deserved, God came down in Jesus Christ and took their punishment on, their, on the cross and paid all of their debts and poured grace and mercy out on them instead so that they could start over and begin a brand new life totally free. That's what they needed to know. And that's what you and I need to know too. In his book, Tangible Kingdom, who Halter writes about a dream he had when he won a hundred and $50 million in the Powerball jackpot. And at the time, he was the pastor of a church which met in a mall in a fitness center. And Halter writes, In my dream, I showed up at our church gathering, and I asked people to take 10 minutes and write down all their debt, houses, cars, credit cards, school loans, anything they were, or anyone they were indebted to. 
And then in the next scene of the dream, he says, my assistant Matt and me were sitting on stools in front of the people, encouraging them to come to take communion and to bring their lists of debts up with them. And we formed two lines and and we began writing checks to cover all of their debts. Eventually, the place erupted with tears of joy. Everyone was hugging each other. Grown men were were jumping around like boys. And one guy asked if, if we could go find people in the fitness center where we were meeting and see if we could pay off their debts too. And I said, what the heck, I've still got about 80 million. (laughs) That's what God has done for us. And that's what happens to a community that gets a hold of that reality. It makes you healthy. Because when we know the joy and the freedom of being forgiven like that by God, and loved like that by God, then we can't be judgmental anymore. We can't hold a grudge. We can't hold on to bitterness. I can't think I'm better than you, and and you won't think you're better than me. No, all we can do is is rejoice and, and be grateful together and embrace one another as brothers and sisters and spread the love around. That's good theology. So let's soak in it. Let's teach it to others. Because good theology, when we really believe it, creates healthy lives and healthy community. I think CBC is fairly healthy already. But we can do better. So let's more and more continue to grow into that kind of community. Let's pray. And God, now we prepare to come to this communion table where you write checks to forgive all of our debts. To be reminded that we come undeserving. We come weighed down with guilt and condemnation. We're all lawbreakers. We all have offended you. And yet you pour out abundant mercy. I pray that you would teach us more and more to treasure that. To passionately teach and communicate that. First of all to one another. And then to anyone else we can. Continue to make us into a healthy, vibrant community. In Jesus' name, amen.